You will notice in the back there, there's some uh, materials for the class today. Um, just really one page there on the Pauline letters. So if you haven't gotten that one, I, I did see some people holding it. So, um, And then there are two quizzes. And I apologize because the quiz number seven was supposed to be in like a few weeks ago. So we got two, but you have some extra time. So we got a month to get those turned in once you worked at it. So that will cover, the quiz seven will be the part of meaning and application and the role of the Holy Spirit on interpretation. So that's, and then quiz eight is focusing on the New Testament letters that we have been covering. So last week we had Michael uh, covering the, uh, really some of the common um, elements in the New Testament letters that will help us to interpret it better. So what we're going to do today is go step by step, uh, visiting the interpretive journey, but more specifically with the New Testament letters, and then halfway through I'm going to use an example from Hebrews on how you follow the steps and get to the point of application. All right, so we'll try to do this with every one of the, the genres that we're studying, uh, the, you know, the Gospels or the Book of Acts. We'll do with each one of those. We'll have one part explaining how we interpret that particular type of reading, and then we'll have a practical class on following step-by-steps in one specific passage and giving some applications of that, all right? So hopefully that way will encourage you that you can study your Bible on your own and you can understand and to, how to apply it, all right? So let's start with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you so much for uh, your faithfulness to us and your clarity in giving us words that we can understand and that we can apply to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater appreciation for letters uh, the New Testament letters and how they communicate your will for us and your will for the church. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus and to engage in understanding these uh, principles. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was listening to a discussion yesterday on this matter of New Testament letters, and one of the, the professors was just saying, you know, can we imagine how boring it would be if God revealed to us, uh, himself to us, and his principles for the church through a systematic theology? Just, you know, topics to be followed, and, you know, as opposed to the letters, where you have real situations, real people, they're dealing with how does doctrine applies to all these issues in my life? Right? So how is a, a Christian family supposed to look like? How is um, the relationships at my job supposed to look like? How do I deal with suffering? And you have real people with real struggles there being addressed in this letter. So I think it is more exciting, and as we look to those things, it's, it's good for us to try to put ourselves in their shoes Right, where, what was it like in the first century to be a Christian, being persecuted? And so um, I hope to give you some of this encouragement as you, as you read it. 
and we'll jump right in. So we are in chapter 9 from our textbook. If you don't have a copy, we have extra ones there to give away. So chapter 9, and I think I left my copy over there. Um, but it's right, I think maybe the third page within the chapter where it says how to interpret New Testament letters. Yeah, okay. So let's go to step one. Well, the step one is grab, grasp the text in their own town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? So we want to encourage you when you're reading a New Testament letter to not just pick and choose some of the, the things that are more interesting to you, but just try to read the whole letter, especially the short ones where you can read from beginning to end one sitting. Obviously, you can go back to it and study section by section, but it is helpful for you to see the whole thing before you start studying the individual parts. Both ancient and contemporary letters were meant to be read from start to finish. Uh, don't let the chapter and verse divisions of the letter to distract you. That is not inspired. You know, it was later on that um, people thought, you know, let's just divide things to be easy, maybe to locate in the Bible as we're making reference to it. So you have chapters and verses. But in the original, there were no chapters or verses on it. It was just the letter as a whole. So Paul didn't write, you know, I'm going to write here 1 Corinthians chapter 13, <laughs> and this is going to be the passage about love. No, he wrote instructions to the letter uh, to the Corinthians, and then, you know, obviously there was a part that addressed Christian love. So I uh, appreciate how Kaiser and Silver, I don't know if you, Michael read this last time, um, explain how people pick and choose approach is not really the way that we work with letters today. Um, he says, and I quote, what would one think of a man who receives a five-page letter from his fiancée on Monday and decides to read only the third page on that day? And then the last page on Thursday, and then the first two pages two weeks later, and so on. We are all aware of the fact that reading a letter in such a piecemeal fashion would likely create nothing but confusion. The meaning of a paragraph on the third page might depend heavily on something said at the beginning of a letter. Well, it, its real significance may not become apparent until we, we get to the next page that we read. You know, you, you might have a very harsh beginning where they're processing things, and then you get to the end of the letter, and it's encouraging, so you see the message as a whole. And he continues, the more cogently the letter was written, the riskier it would be to break it up arbitrarily. Moreover, part of the meaning of a document, it is the total impact that it makes on the reader, and the meaning is often more than just a sum of different parts. So, um, sometimes a New Testament writer will actually tell you what was the purpose for the writing of that letter. Um, so it's easier, and then you try to connect the dots, right? So, for instance, First Timothy, um, Michael will be preaching today. He, he states clearly to us. So, First Timothy chapter three. Let's turn there. Chapter 
So Paul is stating why he wrote this letter to Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. So chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, so I'm hoping to have this trip to Ephesus and, and see you, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one, to, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. So he's saying, you know, this letter, I wrote this whole letter here to provide instruction for the church so people know how to be, how to do. We, yesterday in our um, membership class, Zach made an interesting question, asked an interesting question about, okay, what about the passage to talk about women um, not exercising authority of men? Does that mean that I can't have a boss who is a woman? Um, is this passage referring to even work situations as well, or is just talking about the church? And I think this verse here answers, right? Paul was writing specifically to address, that was what Michael even explained yesterday, um, that he's writing this specifically for the church. Um, a work environment is a different type of scenario. Obviously, we talked about uh, roles there are in other parts of scripture like Ephesians talk about a wife being you know being her main responsibility to care for the home so but that doesn't exclude women from working um, and so knowing the context and the purpose of a letter does help us to see why was that there um, and does that connect with this or that well no here he makes it very narrow the, the in implications of this so uh, we begin to understand what the text meant to the biblical audience by reading the whole letter from beginning to end the way it was meant to be read. Since letters are occasional, and you probably will remember this, they were written for a specific situation. The next step in discovering what the text meant to the biblical audience is to reconstruct the historical cultural context of the biblical writer and his audience. You probably remember learning this in, from previous classes, but we should ask the following questions. Who was the author? What was he like? What was his background? When he, did he write? So I found an, a really cool chart, and Caitlin printed it for you. There at the back where there's cr the chronology of Paul's epistles, and missionary journeys and how they all come together. When did they happen? So Christians from, um, you know, have, have studied this and they look at the book of Acts and they saw how the missionary journeys went and they tried to reconstruct when those letters, what year those letters were written, which is pretty cool to see. And then you see who was the Roman emperor at that time and how that had implications on the life of the Christians. Some of them were very harsh on Christians, like Nero, and, and that really had implications to the church being persecuted. Um, so when did he write? What was the nature of his ministry? Was he an apostle? Was he a disciple? What kind of relationship did he have with the audience? 
um, we've been studying the letter to the written to the Colossians. While Paul never set foot in Colossae, but he had a deep concern for those brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet he writes that letter to them. Um, who was the biblical audience? What were their circumstances? Um, we think about First Thessalonians, where Christians are just distraught and sad because they were losing family members that were being killed in persecution, and they thought, boy, did they miss the rapture. It's helpful for us to, to know their circumstance, why that was coming to them. What about their relationship to the author and to each other? And what was happening at that time that the book was written? So reconstructing this situation, it, it's sometimes not always easy because just you know, trying to imagine if you are hearing someone to speak over the phone and you know, they have the phone pretty close. Some people actually put it on the speaker, but there's no speaker. They're just speaking there on the phone and you're only listening to one side of the conversation. I remember watching a show uh, you know, as a kid where there was someone, one of those public, you know, telephone booths, and, and this person is speaking really loudly. And whatever they're saying sounds absurd. And the person listening is like, boy, I, I'm ready to call the police because this is bad. And, you know, and he, and he gets to the end of the conversation and he says something. And I was like, oh, okay. Now make, that makes sense. I'm okay now understanding where he's coming from. But reading the New Testament letters, it's like listening to just one side of the conversation. You know, we, you read Corinthians and, and Paul says, you know, when you wrote to me, well, the Corinthians wrote to Paul before he wrote this letter. What did they say? What did they ask? So we, we don't know. All we know is what Paul is referencing. So it's really like a telephone call. So we have to pay attention to the details. So we don't jump into conclusions ahead of time. Um, so how can we do this? Well, the best approach is to read the letter carefully and gather bits and pieces of information that you can use to reconstruct the situation. If you happen to be studying one of Paul's letters, you can also gain insights from the book of Acts. So then you can use some dictionaries or commentaries. They're very helpful, people that have gone ahead of us and studied that specifically, a specific time in history and sheds light to the context of the letter. Then after you've done that, you summarize what you understood. You know, the letter to Timothy was written when Paul was in jail, right? And he was concerned. He was basically passing the baton to this disciple. So you just write that little, real clear and state what the context is. After you have an idea about the situation of the author and the recipients, you need to identify the literary context of this specific passage that you are studying. The main goal when it comes to this literary context is to trace the author's flow of thought. You know, you ought to be looking for clues like this one in First Timothy. I wrote for this reason. I am writing because I want to see you encouraged. I see that you are discouraged, and I want 
to see that change. I want to see Christ formed in you. So he states uh, many times what's the purpose of the letter. First uh, John, he, he wrote many times, I am writing this so that you are certain about your salvation, so you're assured about your salvation. When you're reading a, a New Testament letter, here's a key point that you should keep in mind, and that is um, the, the paragraphs that you're reading. Normally, it helps you to understand the section if you read the paragraph before and the paragraph after, because there is a flow of thought that you know, Paul or John or James had in mind when he wrote those things. If you isolate that from its context, you might be missing a lot of good nuggets in that passage of Scripture. Specifically, look for the role of your passage plays in the author's flow of thought, and then summarize what you found. After reading the whole letter, reconstructing the historical cultural situation, and tracing the author's flow of thought in paragraphs surrounding your passage, determine what the passage meant to the biblical audience. So this is a step one. First, you're not trying to say, what does this mean to me? You're really trying to get at what it meant to the first people that this was written um, when the author wrote this. And then you use your observation skills to read the text carefully. Look for details. Notice important connections. Study significant words. And then finally, write out in a statement what the passage meant for the first century. And we're going to do one example here that you can follow, okay? But first, I want to discuss how important it is for us to know the context. So Josh has a video there he's going to play, and we'll, we'll have some discussion here after. Are there ways that we can get off track with, it, with reading the letters? We, we hear them as very direct to us. So what, what would be some, some keys to reading them well and then maybe ways that we can get off track if we're not careful? That's a really good question because they were written 2,000 years ago. They were written to a different culture. They were written to specific situations in the churches. And I think one of the things that we need to remember is that they were truly letters. They were not theological uh, tractates, theological essays. They were pastoral letters fit, written specifically for situations in the church. So they're situational. They're very we situational. Need to, we need to keep that in mind as we read them. And then the other side of that is they're written 2,000 years ago to a different culture. So we're at a time when we're in uh, Roman culture and Greek culture was the background of these people and there's some differences there. How do we uh, tap into that aspect? I, I think about what you've done in the Ephesians commentary in explaining some of that backdrop and how rich it becomes when we understand some of the historical cultural backdrops of what Paul is saying in Ephesians. Could you use that as an example? Yeah, I love getting into the background because as much as we can help the Bible come to life and see its connectedness with our lives in real life, that's really helpful. And looking at the uh, life setting, looking at the background material can help do that. Let me give one example. 
We all look at Ephesians 1 and realize that it says a lot about the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of election. And it does. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. But why would Paul say that? And how would people in the first century read that? And given the background that they were from. If we look even to the book of Acts in chapter 19, we realize that there was a group of people in the church, a large group, that came to know Christ from worshiping the goddess Artemis. Well, Artemis had the signs of the zodiac on her chest as a necklace. And that was a symbol to all of her worshipers that she claimed to have power over fate. And people living back then were very worried about their fate, their destiny, that they believed that demonic spirits and the stars controlled their fate. For them to pray the sinner's prayer, come to Christ, join the church, and for Paul to write this letter and say, God chose you before the foundation of the world, it, it makes the doctrine of election take on such deep personal significance. Wow, I mean, God loved me, God knew me. In, at that time and chose me. And God is more powerful than Artemis or any other god or goddess. So, so my life is not controlled by the whims of a pagan goddess. Not at all. And I think that's part of the message. We still have the same doctrine, but I think it comes to life because we can get into the heads of the people living back then and see how they would have read it and understood it. And we go, wow, this, this is really powerful stuff. So context really, again, is very important as we think about reading the letters. I, I guess both historical context and cultural context as well as literary context. Very, very important. All these different spheres of context uh, really help enrich and enliven our understanding of the letters. I still believe anybody can pick up the Bible and read it and gain a, an understanding for salvation understand God better, but it seems like we can get to these deeper levels where it just becomes even more exciting and more rich. All right. Um, so what are some dangers that you have maybe seen people pick up some of these letters and twist it? to their own advantage. Have you ever come across anything like that before where people have used letters? So um, Josh has a microphone here. So if you have, you would like to share and Dave will be passing around their, um, any situations or do you see the concerns or the importance of knowing the context? Kathy has like observation here. I'm not sure of the reference, so I'm not sure if it was from a letter, but we are healed by his stripes. Mm. Many say that that concerns physical healing, but mm -hmm. it's spiritual healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really in, in Isaiah, but it, it is a good example where people see some of these promises, right, that, that was given, and they, okay, what is the context? What is Isaiah speaking here? Uh, we have something similar in James for the ladies that are studying there. Uh, it talks about calling the elders when people are sick and the person is healed. And they will anoint with oil. What is that all about? <laughs> it's a good question. The ladies will have the answer in a Bible study. I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> Darling. Yeah. Um, 
Christian schools will oftentimes have sports teams and put something on their shirts. Mm-hmm. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah. Uh, kind of a mixed message there. Uh-huh. Um, and certainly not the intended context of the passage. Yeah. Yep. We, we talked about Philippians 4.13, right? That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I think, boy, if you put that verse in its context on the back of your shirt, basically what you're saying is, we're going to be beat up. <laughs> we're going to be beat up badly. Because when Paul wrote that verse, he was saying, you know, I have suffered hunger. I have endured hardships. And what he's saying is like, I'm all powerful. I'm invincible. He's saying is, you know, all those things that I'm going through is really hard, but I can endure them with God. And so if you put that verse in the back of your shirt and it's context, what you really mean is, I'm ready to be bid up because I trust the Lord. <laughs> um, so it's a really good example there. Any, any other takers on this, um, taking the letters out of context? All right. Um, and, and then I think on the other flip side of this, though, uh, there are passages that are really difficult to, to understand with, if we don't understand the context, right? The, the, the anointing with the oil is one of them. I think you have to really dig and, and you study maybe the history. What does this mean um, to, to grasp what is going on here? Or, um, you know, women wearing head coverings. Why is that? <laughs> do we need to do this? Is this for us? So it is helpful. And that's really what this step two there in your book says is measure the width of the river to cross. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? What is common between us and then what is different? In the New Testament letters, the river difference is not unusually wide, right? We're being separated still 2,000 years of history, but it is not as different as it is when you read the Old Testament law, for instance, where they have all these crops, um, laws, you know, how do you plant in your field? And uh, I mean, we don't live in an agricultural culture, so to speak. Um, And so it was written to New Testament believers. So we have a lot in common with the people that were written in the letters. Nevertheless, even in the letters, the river can sometimes present a challenge. So although they were written to Christian like, uh, Christians like us, they sometimes deal with situations that are very foreign to us. Here, the river becomes wider and more difficult to cross. So for example, when Paul addresses the issue of eating food that has been sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you probably haven't seen food sacrificed to idol ever in your lifetime. Um, I did in Brazil. They had these, um, you know, offerings that they would do to the, um, like the, the spirit of the ocean. So they would have chicken, a uh, whole chicken killed, and you know, they put that as an offering and put it in the platter and some candles, and that was really weird. Um, <laughs> Um, so you don't see, some, some poor people would get there, it was like, no, I don't care <laughs> where it was, I need to eat, so 
they would use that. Um, but really, in our day here in the United States, you know, you, you wouldn't have an issue with eating food sacrificed to idols. I mean, you're now, do we have something that parallels to that understanding? When was, you know, the last time that you, you, you had that meat offered to sacrifice, sacrifice to idols? But when Paul writes about running away uh, in chapter 6 from sexual immorality, wait a minute, do we have sexual immorality today? Absolutely, it's everywhere. It's on the TV, it is on, um, on the billboards, um, it's just everywhere. And then um, 1 Corinthians 13 is speaking of a service um, in the church and people being selfish in their service, in their relationships. Do we have that? Absolutely. So the river is not as wide that we need to cross. It is pretty relatable. It's pretty close to us. So after examining your passage, write a paragraph describing the differences that define the width of the river you need to cross. And I think this is so crucial because especially on those difficult passages where the context is so different than ours, okay, maybe this is already cluing me in that the way it's going to apply to us in this century is going to be different than the way it applied to the people in the first century. But the principle is still valid. It still holds to us. It just looks a little different. All right, so once you have done that, do we go on to the step three. You cross this um, river with the principle. What is the thing that connects, uh, connects us, the theological principles in this text that connects us to the original audience? So you're looking for a broader theological message through the same text to all of his people, and in life of our situation, compares to and differs from the situation of the biblical audience. So you try to identify these theological principles in the text. Uh, in his book, um, Applying the Bible, uh, Jack Kuhacek, um mentions three questions that can help us to locate this theological principle. So here it is. Does the author state that principle? Often in the New Testament letters, the author will state his message in the form of the theological principles. You know, read Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verse 1. That is pretty straightforward. Children, obey your parents. What is the principle? Children, obey your parents. <laughs> right? That's pretty straightforward. But then when this happens, you already have a principle. And another question you can ask is, does the broader context reveal a theological principle? Sometimes the author will supply the theological principle in the surrounding context. So, for instance, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, if you take that verse isolated, some people will look at it and say, you'll see, wives need to submit to their husband, but husbands also need to submit to their, to their um, husbands. Right? What did I say? Why? To their wives. <laughs> you, you, you got it. Or, or children submit to their parents, and, and parents submit their children. Well, okay, let's read the verses before and the verses after. What, what is this about, Really? That's not what the text is saying. He's saying, okay, this is the general principle. There are different relationships of submission within the household. And says he follows this general principle with specific examples 
of how people in the ancient household should submit to each other. So wives to husbands and children to fathers, slaves to their masters. So if you happen to be studying any specific examples, you would want to be aware of the general principle that he stated earlier. And why is so important that you know the principle that he stated earlier? Well, because this is out of reverence for Christ. So um, a husband doesn't demand obedience or submission. It is something that they do voluntarily because they want to honor Christ. A husband leads his wife like Christ, right, in a sacrificial way. So it's helpful to know the context because otherwise I might pick up this text and just use it to my advantage. And it's not really how we, we read the scripture. Then three, uh, we can ask, we should ask why a particular command or instruction was given. Sometimes when you locate the reason behind the command or instruction, you will also find the theological principle. So for instance, in Galatians 5.2, Paul writes, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves to be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So he gives, he gives the principle. The principle is do not get circumcised. I, I, and why you shouldn't do that? Well, because it won't add anything to you. It won't be helpful in any way to add to your salvation. When we ask why the Apostle Paul warns the Galatian against circumcision, we find the theological principle that people cannot achieve God's acceptance by keeping the law or by human effort alone, symbolized by the circumcision. So God's grace is given as a gift. You don't earn it, and getting circumcised will not help you to earn God's grace. That's not at all how it works. So after then you have written your principle of principles in one or two sentences using the present tense verbs, test them against the criteria that was mentioned before, right? This will help you to determine if you have truly discovered a theological principle. So here is the questions. These principles should be reflected in the text, right? It's, it's, it seems kind of obvious, right? But you might have people coming even to the pulpit and telling you great things. But it is not really coming out of the Bible. It's just coming out of their mind. So we need to check that the principle that we found there is really there. Um, Is this principle timeless or not tied to a specific situation or a, a timeline? Even though that might be circumstance, for instance, in Hebrews, we're going to get here in a little bit, um, that letter was written to struggling Christians that were being persecuted. Uh, Do we have Christians in our days that are being persecuted? Absolutely. You know, we read sometimes um, news of believers in Africa or in Asia or in the Middle East and the things that they face as believers. So there is a direct connection uh, with those things. Um, But, you know, not all of us live on those specific scenarios. So how does Hebrews still apply to us if we're not there? Um, The principle should not be culturally bound. 
So it's not something specific to Rome, it's not something specific to Thessalonica, it has to be something that translates and transfers even to us here in Minnesota, <laughs> as clear as day. The principle should be consistent with the teaching of the rest of the scripture, and the principle should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. We don't make the text relevant. It is already relevant. Then step four. Then you consult the biblical map. Right? We, what we're really trying to do here is after you come up with your principle, you're really trying to test, is this really consistent with the rest of Scripture or does this actually contradict the Scripture? How does your theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Is this supported or refuted by other passages of Scripture? So let me give you an example here. Um, can someone read Galatians chapter 2, verse 16? And maybe you can raise your hand and uh, the microphone will come there to you. Galatians 2, 15, 2, 16, sorry. And then another person can read 2, James 2, verse 24. Galatians 2, 16 mm -hmm. says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because works, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is writing and he's saying, you know, no works of the law will justify anyone. It won't save anyone. All right, now let's read James. James 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and not the faith, by faith alone. All right. How do you... It's pretty clear. One is saying, you know, you're justified by, not justified by works, and the other is saying, you're not justified by faith alone. So it, it seems they're, they're contradicting each other, right? And someone might look at this and, and say, well, see, the Bible contradicts itself. But if you read the verses before and the verses after, actually, both Paul and James use Abraham as a model of faith, of saving faith. And Paul will say, you know, Abraham uh, believed in God and justice, righteousness was given to him, was imputed to him because of his faith, right? And then James takes the other side of it, you know, after you've been saved, now you're going to walk in righteousness. You you become a doer of the word and not just a listener because something changed in your heart, right? We have been giving a new heart. Then your life is going to look different. So when he talks about being justified, he's not talking about before God. It's really before man. If, if we approach someone and we look at their life and we see that there's no difference between when they were believers and when they're, they're claiming to be a believer, what would you say? I don't think that person is saved at all. That's what James is saying here. You know, you show me a life, 
And I can tell you if you have faith by the way you behave. And Paul is saying, you know, faith is what you need to be saved. And James is saying, a faith is demonstrated by the works that a person produces. You see how you, you really need to read the context? Otherwise, you might come up with a principle that contradicts the rest of Scripture. All right, and then the last point here is you grasp the text in your own town. Now, I think a lot of people is content with just getting the principle. And what we really need to do is, well, how does this now relate to my life? How am I going to put this into practice? And I think we're not just, we're not so easy to, to do this in an effective way. Either we jump right in into the application and we bypass all the steps, or we don't really get to the specifics. You know, how am I going to be a doer of the word? What does that look like um, in my life? So, these, this is the f- five steps. And so, what I want to do now is... Let's, let's try um, and do a practical training here. We're going to go to a passage, and we're going to follow these steps one by one um, until the point where we get a specific application out of that text, okay? So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I just remembered something here real quick. Um, so remember that I said if you would like to study a passage um, and would like me to assign a passage for you to study these next few months, um, I will have you to, to give me your name. And you know I have to find that list. I know some people that approached me, but it would be helpful if you give me your email address. So what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to send you the text that you'll have, what, three to four months to work on. And you look at these steps here, all right? So if you are assigned a New Testament letter, you already know the steps that you're going to do to get to that point of the passage, all right? So after the class is done, you can come and we'll take your name and email address. Um, All right, so Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin who, which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. All right. It's a really, really encouraging text, but there's a lot in there that we can, that will enrich the understanding once we follow this step. So step one, grasp the text in their own town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience, to the Hebrews? So as you read Hebrews from start to finish, you will notice a rather serious tone as God speaks powerfully through the author about the cost of discipleship. 
As you read that book, you will see this is not, it's almost like a sermon, really. Um, chapter 13, it's just a few pages there, we see the author that we don't know who it is. I think it's Paul, but we'll, we'll have that question answered in heaven. So chapter 13, verse 22, the author says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I think it's kind of funny, but briefly? It's one of the longest letters in the, in the New Testament. But he's saying, you know, this is a word of exhortation. I'm calling you out. That's, that's the reason why I wrote this letter is to call you out, to encourage you, right? To, but also to, to bring you to the, the path, back you to the path, bring you back to the path. So you may also notice a central focus on Jesus along with the extensive use of the Old Testament. There's a lot of reference to the Old Testament, and Jesus is constantly being compared to these, all these different elements of the Old Testament. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is a better high priest than the ones in the Old Testament. So you, you're already trying to reconstruct here. Why is that there are so many references to the Old Testament? Well, because he's writing to Jewish people. He's writing to the Hebrews, right? So there is a, we try to reconstruct the historical cultural situation. You can easily see why Hebrew sounds this note of urgency. Here's why the believers addressed by Hebrews probably came out of a Jewish background and formed a house church or a group of churches in and near Rome. The letter was likely written during the mid-60s. And so if you look at their little map there, mid-60s is right, right about the time where Nero starts going crazy after the, Christ, um, after the Christians. So it was right before Nero, but severe persecution, it's, it's starting to ramp up. Now, if you remember in Jesus' day, the Romans had a, a huge disdain for the Jewish people, right? For their Jewish religion, uh, for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all, all those people. Rome didn't like them very much. So persecution was more with the religious people, the, the, the Jews, now that they have this new group, this new religion, the Christians, they took their focus out of the Jewish people and put their focus on persecuting the Christians. So for someone that was here, you know, I was persecuted as a Jewish person. Now I become a believer and my life is better <laughs> because I'm not as persecuted as the Jewish religious people are. Now when the persecution changed from the Jewish people to the Christians. Now my life is hard again. And what is the temptation? I'm going to revert back to Judaism because it is easier. I'm not going to be as persecuted. So that's the context of the letter. The letter was written during this time and a small band of believers was facing the temptation to reject Christianity and return to Judaism to have an easier time of life. They were discouraged, and they appear to have been wavering in their commitment to Christ. You know, and they might even have found these rationalizations, like the people of Israel in Egypt. Oh, it was so much better in Egypt when we had food and this and that. 
and they forget. Look at the great salvation that you have now. Look at your high priest, your perfect high priest. You know, you would go year after year confessing your sins before a man. You don't do that anymore in Christ because you're the perfect high priest and he made a sacrifice that is once for all. So the whole letter is just saying, Christ is better. Why in the world would you go back to this um, religious system? So let me show you a few passages where you really see this. Uh, Let's read the chapter before, uh, two chapters before, chapter 10. And let's look at verse 32 and 39. 32 through 39. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, right, they got open their understanding, their, they see now the spiritual reality, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partially by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partially by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Now I say, when you became a believer, You are ready to be persecuted, and you suffered at first. But now, and that's where the word endurance really plays an important role here, is, oh, I can bear a little bit. I can bear some suffering. But a year goes by. Two years go by, and it's hard. And the temptation is, I'll go back. It's just easier. And he's saying, you know, you endured in the beginning. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. They lost some of their property. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And he's saying, you know, Endure a little longer. You have endured in the beginning, but continue to persevere. For yet in a little while, and he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure. They needed to be reminded that they live by faith. It is not, okay, if this persecution maybe ends next year. Well, where is their hope? is that the, the persecution would end in a year or two or three, maybe. But when their hope is in Christ, that's not going to fail because he will come. Sooner or later, he will come. But we are not of those who shrink back to destru- destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Encouragement. Do not go back. Chapter 13, at the end of the letter there. I'm just giving you here some snippets of Hebrews so you, you kind of get what he's getting at. So verse 7 from chapter 13. And he's talking about the, the, their leaders that gave them example. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct. Look at them, imitate their faith. 
Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You stay on the one who does not change. Circumstances change. Religion will change, but Jesus won't. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. You know, they had all these dietary laws that they followed, and they thought, you know, this is how we please God. Don't go back to that. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Um, You know, have a greater promise. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. And he says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. You know, it is still here when we are in this world that we're going to suffer. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing this reproach. For we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We are pilgrims just like Abraham. Because we're looking for something better, for a better city, for a better promise. All right. So this is a little bit of... Some, some, so you see the <clears throat> beauty here of, of this book is just trying to encourage, to ramp it up, their faith. Now, what is the next step toward grasping God's word here? Well, the word, therefore. Go back to chapter 12 now. The word, therefore, is being said. It is therefore a reason. Right? Why is that Therefore. Uh, it shows us that our passage is closely connected to the preceding chapter. What is Hebrews 11 all about? Just turn there, and some of your Bibles might have a title. Mine says, The Triumphs of Faith. Um, some others will say, The Heroes of Faith, or The Hall of Faith. It presents example after example of how the saints of old persevered in their faith. So in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the author or preacher uses this image of a race and the example of Jesus himself to exhort his audience to endure in faith, just like the people in chapter 11. So therefore, he says um, in the paragraph then that follows, so how about chapter 12? Uh, the rest of chapter 12. Well, he's talking about the analogy of a parent's love for a child that explains why believers embrace hardship as expressions of heart and of God's love. So he goes on to say, those who suffer, they suffer because God loves them and wants to sanctify them. You know, what, what child there is that a parent doesn't discipline them? So if you're not disciplined to grow, you're not a child of God. That's really what he's saying here. But because you are a child of God, he is growing you through these difficult times. So chapter before, chapter after, 
So after we come to the grips with the context of the passage, before we summarize the, what the passage meant to the first century, we need to observe what, it, what is this, this surrounded by the cloud of great cloud of witnesses. He says here, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Well, he's referring to the saints in chapter 11, how they endured. And, you know, I want to encourage you, when you get back home today, read that chapter. You'll be so encouraged just seeing all these different examples, Abraham, Sarah. Even Samson is mentioned there. <laughs> so be encouraged by that. And it says, knowing that many people have already walked the path of hardship and found God faithful, the biblical audience is then called to do three things here. What are they called to do? Number one, throw off what hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Number two, run the race with perseverance, with endurance. And then number three is fix your eyes to what? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter. He's the ultimate example of faith. He was the example of perfect faith. The author uses the image of a race to illustrate the nature of the Christian life. This image governs how we should understand many of the key words and expression in this passage. Running this kind of race requires both effort and endurance and suggests that the author has in mind a long-distance race, like a marathon, and not a sprint. Why, why do I say that? Well, remember that we read in chapter 10 that he's saying, you suffered in the beginning. You were enduring it at first. But now, you, because time is going by and, and you're getting tired. If you run in a marathon like you run in a sprint, the first mile will be dead. <laughs> you're just going to be dead tired. You will just give up. And he's saying, no, this is a long haul. This is a long run race. About the need for runners to throw off everything that hinders, a commentator says, laying aside weights. What is that about? Well, it may refer to the removing of artificial weights used in training but not in races. I mean, in races, people don't run with weights, right? It doesn't make any sense. More likely, it refers to the Greek costume costume of stripping off clothes to run encumbered. Now, Olympic Games, when they were first, when they first started in, in, in Greece, the runners would run naked, you know, because they didn't want to be hindered by anything. No piece of clothing, which would kind of be a weird race to watch. But, but that's how they ran, with nothing to, f to prevent them from moving, having full range of motion. That image would represent anything that would hinder his readers from winning the race. You know, you take off everything that is preventing you from running freely. Runners are also challenged to run the race that is marked out or set before them, meaning that they must put the faith into action by make the right choices, even though such choices may prove difficult. Christ has delineated to us what that run looks like, 
We don't need to wonder, what are the rules for this race? Well, he gave us those rules. Those rules are marked out before us. Yet those who run the race do not run in their own strength alone. That is, in part, why they are urged to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Uh, Guthrie notes that the word author communicates the idea of a champion. He is a leader or a forerunner or initiator. So both champion and forerunner fit the race imagery. So Jesus, as this forerunner and this person that had gone ahead of us and run the race for us and gave us an example of how we ought to run, when paired with the idea of perfecting, the word teaches that Jesus has cleared the path of faith so that we may run it. So he has gone ahead of us and showed to us how we ought to run it. The way is open, although hurdles exist. The roadblocks have been removed. He has set up the, the path before us. Jesus not only stands as the ultimate example of endurance, but he also inspires endurance in those who follow because he himself focused on the reward that lay beyond the immediate obstacle of suffering. I mean, just look at verse 3. What does he say? For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow tired You will not grow weary and lose heart. You know what it's to have a hard life? It's all your siblings thinking that you're crazy. That's how they thought that Jesus was, that he was crazy. It's all your closest friends leaving you in the moment that you needed them the most. It is being tempted and tested at every trial, at every turn that you take being rejected, spitted upon, he has cleared the path. He has given you the example of endurance. Now we can summarize the meaning of Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 for the biblical audience. The author of Hebrews uses the image of a long-distance race to challenge his audience to persevere in their commitment to Christ in spite of opposition. Rather than drifting away from Christ and reverting to Judaism, they need to run the race of endurance with endurance. For inspiration and encouragement, they should consider the score of faith of the faithful saints that went before them. Look at their faith. See how they scored this race. They're urged especially to focus on Jesus himself, the ultimate example of perseverance under pressure, rather on the immediate circumstance of difficulty. Now, let's measure the width of the river to cross. What is like us in that context and what is unlike us? Well, we are not enduring the same kind of persecution that they were enduring. So that's something that we need to consider. We will have to familiarize ourselves with the suffering of the church in other parts of the world to feel that. We need to think, you know, what it's like for a a Christian living in Syria amongst Muslims, right? What what is it like even here? We have a a huge Somalian population for someone that comes to Christ through that or some really strong Catholic countries in South America. I mean, I, I hear stories about believers 
uh, in Brazil even, how they were completely ostracized when they turned from Catholicism to Christianity. So we got to put those things in mind so we're aware of what that suffering looks like. Now, what then connect us, right? Step three is cross this, this bridge, so to speak. What is the principle that connects us? Well, here are three principles. One is, right, that is in common between us. Well, the Christian life is like a, a difficult, long-distance race, which requires both effort and endurance. The saints who have gone before us supply us with valuable examples of endurance. We should look to them for inspiration and encouragement. Number three, to run the race successfully, we need to re reject things in life that hinders us in our progress, and most importantly, focus on Jesus and our relationship with him. All right, so here's the principle. Looking back to the map, biblical map, there's nothing in here that contradicts, right, or that um, is off compared to the rest of Scripture. Now, how then we apply this to our lives? Let me give you just a few here, maybe based on this first principle. The Christian life is like a difficult, long-distance race, which requires effort and endurance. And the runners in this race are Christians. And the race is life itself. The race is difficult, and we're tempted to take the easier route or even to quit. I think all of us have those moments. It might not be through persecution, but, you know, it was just easy to sin and to go back to this old behavior. It's just easy to go there. But you have something better. You have examples, so do not quit. Running a successful race requires both effort and endurance. So, we need to think uh, really less in terms of minutes and even days and think more in terms of months and years. God wants us to remain steadfast under pressure and stay the course. To run successfully means making the right choices today and the next day and the next week and the next month and the next year and so on. God calls us to hang in there. Hang in there. It is hard, but hang in there. In my counseling ministry, occasionally I encounter Christians who face very difficult scenarios. When they are tempted to get discouraged in their race, sometimes it might be a Christian wife living with an unbelieving husband, or a Christian man working in a hostile and godless environment in his job, or a young athlete in a secular school being surrounded by a team with promiscuous practices, or use of drugs or alcohol. Nearly all of them have been wounded emotionally and continue to carry a lot of baggage, but these believers are committed to the Lord and they are running the race faithfully. So though the people that I'm apparently, uh, currently counseling might not match this exactly scenario, I pray for them and I love on them and encourage them to endure. I point them to these words here, Look at your Savior. Fix your eyes on him and get rid of all these things that want to stop you and prevent you from running the race. They know by experience that running a successful race means choosing Christ even when ridiculed or excluded 
or even treated unjustly at home. Running with endurance means staying on our feet and fixing our gaze on Christ, even if we feel exhausted or depleted or stressed out to the breaking point. The race is not a sprint, it is a marathon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that your words are so clear to us, and though we live in a different context and might not experience the same things that the biblical authors or the biblical audience experienced, yet there's plenty of encouragement to us. Pray, Lord, as we look to Christ as our per- the perfecter and our forerunner, uh, the person that went ahead of us and trailblazed our path so that we might walk in it. Lord, help us to be patient. Help us to run this marathon with endurance, with perseverance. Even when times are hard and we're tempted to revert back to old patterns of thinking, of behaving. Help us, Lord. We know that we can't do, do this apart from you. And that's why we keep our eyes fixed on you, the perfecter of our faith. The precious name, in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.